Just a reminder, again, we have our Christmas Eve service this coming Saturday, right? Saturday uh, at 5 o'clock. Uh, we also do have services on Christmas morning. It's going to be short. If you want to jump in here, again, the kids can wear their pajamas, or you can wear your pajamas, however you want to do that. Uh, just like a 25-minute couple of songs, devotion, uh, communion, we'll send you back onto the house. That's this coming Sunday. No uh, Sunday school this Sunday, no Sunday school on New Year's Day either. Uh, just keep those things in mind. Um, we are in a series called Good Tidings, a Christmas series, taking a look at some of the announcements that were made. Uh, the first of those is John the Baptist. Uh, then the, we saw that the first week, and then uh, this announcement that was made to uh, Joseph, uh, the adoptive father of the Lord Jesus. Um, and then this week, looking at the announcement that the angels bring to Mary and jo- actually to the shepherds, uh, and then later to Mary and Joseph. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. We're we'll reading Luke chapter 2. Uh, beginning at verse 8. So we're picking up where Steve left off earlier. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Here we go. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, I want to go back to the first part of this story which begins at verse 1. It kind of uh, begins this whole narrative there at the, at, the, at the manger, the manger scene. So let's start back at verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. In some of your translations it might say the world should be taxed. That's really what this is. This is a decree uh, from the Roman Empire, uh, from the Roman Emperor himself, that everybody has to, within the Roman Empire, has to go back to the place of their birth where the name is written on the ledger book, right? They didn't have digital back then. Um, and so you have to be checked off that you showed up, you registered. And so this was a way for the Roman Empire to get a sense of who lived and how many people lived in different districts or different areas around uh, their their empire. And so it's very similar to what the U.S. would do. We have a population census that's done every so often. And so that's what they were doing. And mainly this was for tax purposes. Verse 3 says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So in other words, you had to go back and report to the town that you are born in. Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why did he do this? Well, it tells us because he was from the house and lineage of David. In other words, it's telling us that Joseph came from uh, the, the lineage of David. David himself, King David, was born um, well, a little before 1000 B.C. And so David, his hometown was Bethlehem. And Joseph, being from the lineage of David himself, he was also born in Bethlehem. But his family tree spidered down from King David. And that's what this is pointing out here. It says in verse 5, He went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Mary goes along with Joseph on this trip from Nazareth in northern Israel down some 60 to 70 miles to the city of Bethlehem. I've got a map for you here. And this map shows perhaps the route that Mary and Joseph would have taken uh, headed down through the Negev, through the Levant, through the area um, along the Jordan River. And this would have been, again, 60 to 70 miles as the crow flies from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. But probably the route that they took, a little less mountainous, a little more 
well-traveled area would have been about 90 miles. Now, I know that some of you ladies perhaps had a wonderful pregnancy. In the ninth month of your pregnancy, you're feeling especially terrific. Um, but I know from my from experience of watching my wife go through this with three different children that there's no way in the world that I would have gotten her on the back of a donkey in the ninth month of her pregnancy, not for five minutes, much less for a 90-mile trip someplace. But again, there's, power, there's something at play here. Um, and the scriptures say, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, for God, the one who, one who is the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So why does Mary do this? Why does she go to Bethlehem? Because the scriptures predicted that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem, himself named from the house and lineage of David. There are forces here that are greater at work, that are greater than Mary's comfort. And so it, and so it just so happens, perhaps, that the time that she's ready to give birth, that the census comes out requiring Joseph to go register in Bethlehem. Coincidence or providence? I'll let you decide. Verse 6. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him, or laid him in a manger. Um, let's take another look at our map here. This is a map that shows Bethlehem situated about six miles south and west of Jerusalem. And then you can see to the east is the city of Bethany. That was also one of the plays a key role in one of the stories of Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, that he goes to resurrect from the dead just a week before Jesus himself will be resurrected. So you see Bethany off there to the east, about three miles, and then Bethlehem about six miles south and west. Um, both of these cities were considered suburbs. You can kind of see how they're situated, considered suburbs of the capital city of Jerusalem. At certain times of the year when there were major religious festivals or major religious observances where a lot of people would flock to the capital city of Jerusalem, that's where the temple was. People wanted to come and be a part of that. And so when they would come into town, these suburb areas would feel the swelling effect of the population that was coming into Jerusalem. Uh, they would spill over into Bethany and into Bethlehem. For example, during Passover week, the population of Jerusalem, which normally hovered around 100,000 people, would have swelled to well over a million people. Josephus, a historian from the first century who was alive at the time, uh, maybe just after, he was writing just after Jesus had been crucified, uh, reports that there was about 250, over 250,000 lambs, one lamb representing one person, that were sacrificed at Passover week uh, on Passover day. Um, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. So 250,000 people have come to town. So you've got 100,000 people living in Jerusalem, plus this probably about over a million now that has swelled the population. People didn't just come by themselves. They traveled with their families and that sort of thing. And so um, you've got, it says at the end of verse 7, that baby Jesus was born in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, more than likely, this is because a lot of uh, popula a lot of people have come to Jerusalem for one of these festivals or for one of these um, holiday weekends, if you would. So Mary and Joseph, they get to the uh, hotel and the rooms are all full. Somebody, somebody forgot to make reservations, right? Um, the innkeeper points them to a little stable out back where the animals are kept, perhaps put a, up a little rope fence. They get some warmth from the animals, and that is where the Holy Son of God came into the world as Mary's little baby. Now, how about these angels and the shepherds? Look at verse 8. It says, in the, in the same region around the area of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Let's go back to our map for just a minute. 
you can see there that Bethlehem is situated. It's about two, where, where it's at. It's about 200, it's about 2,500 feet above sea level. Um, Bethlehem is a Mediterranean climate, which means that it is warm and dry um, in the summers, um, averages about 80 degrees, and it's cool and wet in the winters, averages lows in the 30s. Um, annual rainfall in Bethlehem is around 22 to 23 inches. Now compare that with South Georgia and Central Georgia, which is somewhere around 44 to 45 inches. It seems like we got most of that about a week ago. But in any case, Bethlehem is not a moisture-rich area as our area is. However, given its elevation and the lack of extreme temperatures, Bethlehem proved to be an area that was very good for farming. It was an area that was very good, especially for raising uh, grazing sheep for pasture land. In fact, in Bible times, there's an area just north of Bethlehem, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, known as the Hills of Ramoth. Now, if you remember from Psalm chapter 23, David, who grew up in Bethlehem, right? He knew about shepherds. And he writes in Psalm chapter 23, the Lord is my... I mean, this is the guy who knew about grazing sheep. Did David himself graze sheep in the hills of Ramos just north of Bethlehem? Perhaps that's possible. It was a green pasture land territory just north of Bethlehem between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And it was where all the Passover lambs were housed in the lead up to Passover. Remember, you've got 250,000 plus lambs. You can't just bring them all to town on a truck on the one day of. And instead, you've got to bring them and stage them in a certain area in the weeks. And so they'd be building up lambs and building up lambs in this area in the hills of Hermas, south of Jerusalem, north of Bethlehem. And they would graze these sheep. They would house these sheep in this area um, between the two for Passover. Were the shepherds outside of Bethlehem working in the hills of Ramos? possible? Were they watching sheep that would become sacrificial lambs? It's possible. Verse 9. So we've got these shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Let's talk about that for just a little bit. A couple of words there. One of the words is the word glory. In the, Hebrew, in the Greek, it's the word doxa. Luke reports that the glory of the Lord shone around these shepherds. The glory of the Lord can be two things, uh, how, it, how that word dox is used. Sometimes it refers to the brilliance or it refers to the luminescence of God and of his presence. Um, this, it's a light that sticks to or clings to like a residue of whatever that light is cast upon. When Moses, for instance, spoke with God, Moses had to wear a veil over his face afterwards because when people saw him walk in, his face was shining so much that it kind of freak people out. And so he had to wear a veil over his face. The luminescence of God was clinging to his skin. And that appears to be what Luke is describing here, that this angel, having just been in the presence of God, with the glory of God, with the light of God, clinging to this, the body of this angel was enough to light up the area around where these shepherds were out in the fields. You can imagine that the pasture just completely came alive with light. They're all of a sudden be able to see everything around them like it's full daylight. Um, it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. The word in Greek that's translated shone is the word perilampao, and it's used only one other time in the New Testament. It's used on an occasion, though, where with the Apostle Paul when he sees this blinding light from heaven. And the interesting thing about Paul's uh, interaction with this perilampao, with the glory of God, is that it's a daylight experience. I'm here with the shepherds. It's a nighttime experience. We can imagine things lighting up. But this light is so brilliant that it even outshines the sun. 
So Paul has this experience where he, the, the glory of God shines upon him during the daytime. It is so bright that it knocks him backward in broad daylight off of his horse. Now, as we might expect, the reaction of the shepherds is one of fear. It says that they were scared to death. The Greek word is the word phobeo, and it means they were fearful for their very lives. Phobeo is where we get the English term phobia from. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The news was, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David who is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Skip on down to verse 13. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In some of your translations, uh, peace on those with whom his favor rests. Now, a few moments ago, I mentioned that God's glory can be two things. The first is that it can be this brilliant light that when it, whatever it casts upon, it leaves a residue, if you would, of God's uh, luminescence upon that. Uh, but that's, that's one concept of how it's used, um, that it's this, nat this light that naturally and eternally emanates from God, the Father. But then sometimes the word glory, doxa in the Greek, uh, can refer to honor that is due to God. And that's the sense that the angels are using this word glory when they say glory to God in the highest. That is, give honor to God. It's an invitation to the shepherds to say, hey, look, join us in giving glory to God. Join us in giving honor to God and praise to God. Join us in our worship of God. All right, well, that's the end of our passage for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop here and ask our most important question. It's the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make? to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. When it comes to this subject of glorification, it seems to me that there are people aplenty who are interested, more interested in self-glorification and self-promotion than they are in joining the angels singing glory to God. Reasons for this might include, this is just me thinking this week, I don't know that I pulled this out of any particular psychological evaluation or scientific uh, journal, so this is just my take on it. But reasons for this might include that people want to be famous. It seems like there's an epidemic these days of people who want to be famous and want to be noticed. They want to be somebody. Other reasons why folks are engaged in self-glorification may include deep insecurity. They are looking for affirmation from other people. They want other people to tell them, you're okay, because they're really not sure that they are. On the issue of self-promotion and self-glorification, the Apostle Paul knew something about that, and he warned the church against it. In his letter to the church in Corinth, right in the opening lines of the letter, in the first chapter of the letter to Corinthians, Paul um, is addressing the issue of a cult of personality that has developed among some of the church membership. He writes 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a quarreling among you, my brothers. And what is the quarreling that he's writing to address, or amongst many other issues that he's writing to address? But what is this quarreling? Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, while another person says, well, I follow Apollos. And yet another person says, well, I follow Cephas, that is the apostle Peter. And then others still say, well, I follow Christ. Paul recognized here that the kind of followership and self 
a kind of followership and self-promotion by church leaders was an unhealthy thing. Paul's going, hold on just a second here. Well, it's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter. None of those guys would have wanted it to be about them. Uh, It's about Jesus. That's who we are to follow. Paul calls this kind of unhealthy thinking into question. He writes in verse 13, is Christ divided? He says, tell me, was Paul, was I the one who was crucified for you? Of course that wasn't. He says, were you baptized into the name of Paul? That's just, that's silly talk. Of course you weren't baptized in the name of Paul. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is where, Paul is saying, the glory and the honor should be. Paul resolved the issue this way. He writes later in the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. He says, be imitators of me only as I imitate Christ. Or in some translations, follow my example only as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, there's nothing about Paul. Paul didn't see anything on himself that was worth repeating. Only the things that he was repeating that were like Jesus. And so Paul is saying, don't be like me, be like the Jesus who I'm trying to emulate. And if you see anything in me that's just Paul, don't bother with that. Just let that be. But if there's something that looks like Jesus that you're seeing, then sure, that's worth all of us following after that example. But the time that I have remaining, I want to share with you, practically speaking, three ways that we can join the heavenly host and sing glory to God in the highest Because as Christians, we are to love and worship the Lord Jesus, not the man or the woman in the mirror. So how do we do that? Practically speaking, what's that look like? Number one, ready? I got three of them for you. Number one, first way to bring glory to God with our lives is number one, by daily spending time in quiet with the Lord. You say, Gordon, that doesn't have anything to do with me glorifying God with my life. Oh, yes, it does. Friends, I cannot underestimate enough the importance of a daily quiet time with God in preparing us to go out into the world to glorify God with our lives. If the desire of your heart is for you to go out, into, out the door and represent the Lord Jesus and represent him well, then before we go out the door, we have to spend time being washed over by the Holy Spirit. We have to spend time down on our knees, either symbolically or literally before the Lord. There is no substitute for it. It's like wanting to be a marathon runner. Uh, I don't know if some of y'all knew, but one of our own, Kenny, I don't know if Kenny's still in the building. Yeah, he's back there. Kenny ran a marathon last Sunday. That's why he wasn't here. He was out in Jacksonville running up down the roads way faster than I could possibly do it. So kudos to Kenny. Y'all congratulate him on his way out, uh, on your way out later on today. But I mean, you know, you don't, you don't become a marathon runner by just going out the day of the race, right? You got to do all the prep and all the training in the, in the weeks, in the months lead up to that. Um, A daily quiet time is the same way. It's where our soul gets laid bare before the Lord. It is where we see ourselves as we truly are. And friends, when you see yourself as you truly are, with all of our shortcomings and all the faults and everything, you can't help but humility to come to mind. You can't help but humility to flood into your heart and to fill you. But you got to go put in the time in order for that to happen. Years ago, I remember hearing uh, somebody say at one of the conferences I was at, she, this was the lady who uh, was sharing with us, and she said, you know what, ministry is the overflow of your personal devotional life. Ministry is the overflow of your personal devotional life. You want to know how you get ready to go out the door and glorify God? You start by spending time with him in quiet. 
Um, let me be clear, this is not something that anyone has to do in order to get to heaven. I'm not sharing with you qualifications in order for your salvation to be held intact. If you're happy and content with the things in life and the way they are, you can roll along with God without a daily quiet time. However, if it is the uppermost desire of your heart for you to be used mightily of God, then find a quiet space and spend time there daily with him. God may only speak to you three words that day, five words. Maybe you get ten. I don't know. Maybe you get a lot more than me. But those three words, friends, those will be all the words that you need in order to move through the day and to do it in a way that glorifies the Lord. Find a quiet place and spend time with, him, with the Lord there daily. Number two, second way to bring glory to God with our lives, number two, is to celebrate the successes of others. To celebrate the successes of others. I'm not talking about flattery here. I'm talking about genuinely complimenting someone genuinely celebrating with someone else their successes, their promotions, their achievements, their accomplishments. Friends, we, we can't do this. It is a clear indicator to us that we need to go back to step one and spend some time in quiet with the Lord. Friends, if God decides to recognize somebody else over us, if God decides to raise somebody else up over instead of us, and God gets the glory through that, then we should be rejoicing because our life is all about God getting glory, right? So even if somebody else gets promoted, but God gets the glory through it, then hey, that's worth a party. Friends, if God decides to recognize somebody else over us, we need to be willing to share compliments. We need to be willing to say, affirm that those person and congratulate them on that success. I sincerely believe that the front rows of heaven will not be occupied by those recognized the most here on earth. Rather, the front rows of heaven will be occupied by the least recognized. And everybody's going to be saying, when we get up there to heaven, who was she? I don't remember him. What, what did they ever do? I don't, I don't remember their name being celebrated. But friends, it's as John the Baptist said in John chapter 3 and verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. And when we live our lives that way, we are glorifying God with our lives. Number three, and finally, third way to give God the glory is to verbally say it with our mouths. To verbally say it with our mouths. What I mean is that so often, as followers of Christ, we, and we don't mean to do this, right? We rob God of getting the credit because people look at us, they see the inner strength that we have because of our relationship with God. They see the joy that's inside of our lives. They see the love that emanates from us. They see God's blessings in our lives. They see that our lives are not a total you know, wreck and a disaster, but that they're stable and that there's wisdom inside of us. And in our mind, we may be saying, you know what, Lord, I know that all of this and who I am and the person that other people maybe admire or whatever, that all of this is because of you. I, I, I know that, God. However... Unless we tell an on-watching world, they may get the wrong idea. And they, miss, they may miss the source of our peace and the source of our hope and the source of our strength. And they may give us the credit and just say, well, you know what? She's just a more capable person than I am. Or he's just uh, better qualified than I am. I mean, they just have a better temperament than I do. Well, friends, again, it's who, who we are who we are because of the God that we serve and the God that we spend time with in quiet that's why we are that person that others admire. Friends, we have to open our mouth and make sure that people know where the credit belongs. It's not enough just to know it in our heart. We need to tell people with our mouth. We don't have to be obnoxious about it. Like, you know, I can't accept a compliment or I can't accept somebody's thank you. That's not what I'm talking about. We can do this respectfully, but everywhere we go, with everyone we meet, 
They should know that the reason why the good things that are going on in my life are there is because of God and his mercy, is because of God and his strength, because of God and his love and his forgiveness of me. The love of self, friends, sits on the inside of every one of us. Whether it be for the love of the spotlight, for the love of self-promotion, or for the love of self-glorification, it is in there, in each of us. To root it out, we need to, number one, spend time with the Lord daily. Let the Holy Spirit of God wash over us and humble us and prepare us to go out and glorify God. Number two, to glorify God with our lives, we need to come to the place of being able to celebrate the promotions and the successes of others. If God needs for us to get promoted, friends, God will promote us in due time. He will. But we need to be able to be willing to celebrate the successes of others in the meantime. Number three, to bring glory to God with our lives. Number three, we need to open our mouths and make sure we respect and make sure respectfully that people know where the credit belongs. Let me close with these words from the angels. It says, Luke chapter 2 and verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, and inviting you and I to say it along with them, Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we pause here today. Thank you for your word, which reminds us of where the glory belongs, of where the honor belongs, of where the worship belongs. Lord, there's a lot of people running around this world trying to get the, word, the world to honor them, trying to get the world to notice them. And Lord, why no, why no, while notoriety is not bad, uh, and Lord, you can use that. You can use the spotlight being shined on Christians in a way to glorify you. Lord, may we make sure to reflect where the credit is due. God, we pray for... Um, uh, this time of quiet, as we come around this table, we're reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood. Or may you just in these quiet moments of communion bring that humility that each and every one of us needs as we walk out into life. Or we know that there is nothing, nothing that we can accomplish that is of eternal significance apart from you. God, take these moments, take our empty hands and use us for your glory. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.